In recent years, Scotland has undergone massive changes. In my lifetime, it has come to look more and more like an independent nation, something that many thought was simply impossible only a generation ago. But what makes a nation? As a concept, a nation is something that is inherently difficult. It's one yet many collective yet distant character. It allows for a whole set of different ways to understand and interpret what that word nation means. But perhaps, above all, a nation is defined by how it talks to itself and how we all, as members of a national community, talk to and understand each other. In most instances, a nation is defined and in a large part sustained by a national media. In recent years, this has not been the case in Scotland. In this series of podcasts and in a forthcoming book about the case for building a new Scottish media, I'll be arguing that the time has come for a serious discussion about the kind of media Scotland wants and needs. In this first episode, I'll be establishing a few basic facts and putting across my own views, before going on to release several following episodes based on discussions with journalists, academics, filmmakers, bloggers, activists and cultural figures. I don't work for any media organisation. I have, on the face of it, not much skin in the game here. And yet I have been moved to tell a story about a crisis in our media in Scotland, because there is much that has been forgotten. Everyday, brilliant, complex and fascinating stories unfold if we do not start to address our media deficit, we risk losing our ability to tell them altogether. Because whoever runs this country, and whatever its ultimate constitutional destiny, if we want that country to be open, engaged, diverse and democratic, we will need to begin the process of rebuilding a national media. So I want to do more than just complain about the state of our newspapers and broadcasters, because based on widely held concepts about what the media does, we can see that a nation without a media to call its own must be a nation lacking a great deal. We need to take a broader view and look at the bigger picture. We need to step out from the old and into a new kind of media space with confidence. In Scotland we have tended to think of these problems in terms of simple solutions. Often these ideas are smart, legitimate and deeply necessary, but we cannot look at the many problems that make up this crisis in our media in isolation, and it is tenuous to claim that there is currently a Scottish media worthy of the name. There is no answer to the lack of something, there is only a will to imagine, to create and to build something new. BBC Radio Scotland is a national humiliation. Too much of journalism in general and, and, and broadcasting has been a question of finding establishment voices and letting them basically have a go at each other. If I was hard pressed, I could count on less than the fingers of two hands the number of journalists I would say are a must read in Scotland. And that's not enough. That's all from us. Now it's time for the news where you are. The news where you are comes after the news where we are. The news where we are is the news. It comes first. The news where you are is the news where you are. It comes after. We do not have the news where you are. The news where you are may be news to you, but it is not news to us. The news may be international, national, or regional. The news where we are may be international news. The news where you are is never international news. Where you are is not international. The news where you are comes after the international and national news. The news where you are may be national news or regional news. However, national news where you are is not national news where we are. It is the news where you are. James Robertson's The News Where You Are 
poem that went viral during the referendum on Scottish independence. Its dry humour is also strangely poignant, a reminder of how much the location of newsmaking affects our relationship with it. The question of who speaks to what audience from where is one that we'll return to later, but although we may feel maligned by the process of newsmaking in Scotland, let's not forget that in the modern globalised world, the news is everywhere. President Morsi is addressing the nation right now. He is not going to resign. Few things demonstrate this better than the emergence of rolling news services in the 1990s, a form of news media that was relentlessly pushed by CNN during the first Gulf War, as this opportunistic promo reveals. The one source where President Bush follows the widening conflict and Saddam Hussein looks for the Allies' next move, where key figures monitor world reactions, families of soldiers wait for news of loved ones, and the world watches for an opening to peace. The one source these people have is the source you have. Now, more than ever, shouldn't you be watching CNN International? Yet it would be more than a decade later that the full significance of rolling news was demonstrated. The events of September 11th, 2001 showcased the full capacity of such services to dramatically play out events as they were happening in real time. Did you see what happened? What happened? Well, I was in the path train and there was a huge explosion sound. Everyone came out. A large section of the building is blown out around like the 80th floor. Did, was it hit by something or was it something inside? It was inside. inside. It, it was, was inside. inside. Because it looked out. Everything was coming out. Everything all the windows coming were coming out. All the papers. Since then, social media has added an additional level of nervous energy to the news that we consume, giving a heightened role to the citizen as witness or commentator and throwing into flux the traditional roles of producer and consumer. This was demonstrated demonstrated in a remarkable episode that saw one key chapter of the post 9-11 story concluded, not on CNN, but on microblogging site Twitter. IT consultant living in Pakistan unknowingly gave the public the first play-by-play of Osama bin Laden's final moments. So Hype Attar jumped on Twitter and logged a first-hand account of what he heard right outside his windows as U.S. Special Forces moved in on the compound just a few miles away. His first tweet read, Helicopter hovering above Abbottabad at 1 a.m. is a rare event. A short time later, he wrote, A huge window shaking, bang here in Abbottabad. I hope it's not the start of something nasty. Turns out it was the end of bin Laden's run. New media technology has widened access while simultaneously speeding up the pace at which stories develop. While it may give voice to new groups, often previously marginalised, citizen journalism is not a substitute for quality news content. And new media companies have been largely uninterested in taking over the functions of traditional broadcasters. The importance of this distinction was outlined in 2010 by Jon Snow when he reflected on coverage of the dramatic events that led to the formation of the coalition government earlier that year. New media is never going to put a helicopter up. New media is never going to provide a camera anywhere unless it's to spy on your street corner to put on Google Maps. Uh, This this is an interesting situation. But putting those helicopters up cost us a lot of money. Putting those cameras out cost us a lot of money. Google, Yahoo, Twitter, Facebook, they, of course, had a field day because all these pictures pitched up on all those those platforms. Uh, Did we get a penny? Not a single penny. Not even for the jet fuel. Nothing. Nothing at all. Though we may not respect media institutions in the way we once did, and though the question of funding is more acute than ever, state broadcasters and large media corporations remain dominant providers of content. As a result, the character of these organisations remains of profound importance. The most well-known analysis of how these organisations operate in terms of filtering and selecting news content was conducted by Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky in their 1988 work, Manufacturing Consent. Uh, The issue is whether the media are free. Uh, are the media, by their institutional structure, 
free to allow expression of opinion from whatever source and looking at any topic and so on and so forth. So if it turned out that 80% of journalists were part of one faction of the business party rather than another faction of the business party, would that tell you anything? On the one hand, we're used to hearing about how new media technology can liberate us by providing ever more access to ever more information and to a global village of images. In the modern world, information has become the basic commodity, and as a result, keeping it free has become ever more challenging. Scotland, like all countries, must confront these vast issues, but a recent decline in both its print and broadcast media has made this task doubly problematic. The BBC's handling of stories leading up to the referendum and Scottish independence was at various points questioned by campaigners on both sides of the argument. Labour MP Ian Davidson went so far as to suggest live on air the BBC Scotland's flagship news programme favoured a pro-nationalist agenda. It perhaps might be appropriate at this stage if you would like to apologise to me oh, for, suggesting, for suggesting that I have come into this interview in any way biased against your argument and for <coughs> one political party or the other. Nobody in this programme works in that way and it is offensive that you should suggest that. Well I have that. to say I don't believe that. I've already complained, as have the Labour Party on a number of occasions, about the way in which Newsnight Scotland behaves. And I think you are clearly biased and have been for a long time against the unionist parties. <coughs> and if that causes you concern, then I'm afraid you've just got to recognise that politics is about people exchanging views. Well, and you're not above the fray. And if you want to stand for election, do so. Otherwise, try and be more neutral. But accusations of bias and mishandling were more loudly and more frequently made by supporters of the Yes campaign. This culminated in 2,000 protesters gathering outside BBC Scotland's headquarters at Pacific Quay. In the following clip, two protesters explain their reasons for attending. A lot of the reporting is very colloquial as well, so we're seeing that we're reflected as a really small country that's incapable of being able to take care of its own affairs. I first noticed very strong bias. Uh, it was back, I think it was the 3rd or 4th of February 2014, and it was the day that Hollywood passed the same-sex marriage bill. And I mean, it was, it was quite a monumental event. Whenever similar legislation was passed in Westminster, it got wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It was number one news item on every BBC news bulletin. But when it happened at Hollywood, the number one news bulletin that day was, the, the, I think it was the director of BP or Shale, uh, given another one of these warnings about independence. Did the BBC deliberately set out to favour one side or another in the referendum contest? This is a question that we may never find a definitive answer to. But even if we could conclusively prove the BBC was actively pursuing a pro-UK agenda, it is hard to see where such a conclusion would lead us, especially when there are far more important questions about the future of broadcasting in Scotland that need to be answered. The more significant issue at the heart of the BBC's performance last year is its structure. Often, it seems to struggle to represent the diverse political cultures present in the nations and regions of these isles. Last year, veteran journalist Ian Bell told me about what he saw as the inherent dilemma at the heart of the BBC's engagement with the independence issue. If you're a journalist working for the British Broadcasting Corporation, how do you deal with a challenge to the British state? It's very, very difficult to say how you actually work that out, either logically or in terms of how you set your news values. It is in the title, you are the British, you're the state broadcaster. Very, very difficult. That dilemma was not simply a quiet moral quandary. The entire history of public service broadcasting in the UK, while it always stressed its independence from government, was also about strengthening and indeed centralising the experience of a national British culture. It was always going to be challenging for a public service broadcaster in a unitary state to represent the growth of a movement entirely motivated towards the end of that state. That this tension was often capable of creating paralysis is 
perhaps unsurprising. And by the way, the commitment to national unity that underpins the BBC is not abstract. In 2004, UK media regulator Ofcom identified four broad social purposes of public service broadcasting, two of which were to reflect and strengthen our cultural identity through high-quality UK national and regional programming, and to bring the nation together for shared experiences. But controversy about the BBC's handling of the referendum campaign crystallised in the final 10 days before voters went to the polls. You're watching BBC News. I'm Anita McVeigh, live in Edinburgh, where Alex Salmon says he's confident that next week people will vote to leave the United Kingdom. The First Minister downplays the significance of a series of banks confirming they'd shift their base from Edinburgh to England in the event of a yes vote. On the 6th of September, a YouGov poll predicted a 51% yes vote. This drastically increased the news value of the referendum story, as did dire warnings channeled through the UK government from big business about the consequences of such a vote. The response to this from BBC Network headquarters was to dispatch high-profile presenters who often seemed to be broadcasting from a newly foreign Scotland back to a home audience. But it just gives you a sense of how extraordinarily charged this whole campaign has become and into which, bluntly, the BBC and the sort of what Mr Salmon calls the metropolitan media have been dragged because Mr Salmon has accused us, the so-called metropolitan media, of deliberately peddling what he calls scarce... The question of who ought to be speaking to what audience revealed the BBC management at odds, not just with Yes supporters and politicians, but with media professionals within Scotland. Baffled by this phase of the coverage, presenter Stuart Cosgrove made his view clear at the time. Just look at the coverage on any of the channels and suddenly people that have not been part of this debate are flown up to Scotland to give some fake status to things and you have people People dotted all over hillsides in Edinburgh doing special reports and it's this big status thing. Oh, London's arrived at last. You know, you have the quite ludicrous situation of a London-based senior anchor asking what the thoughts are to a political correspondent from Scotland on the side of a hill. I've always felt that the idea of BBC Scotland's opt-out capabilities are far too small far too squeezed and not autonomous enough and therefore as a consequence of that uh, TV that goes out on the network is seen as real telly and stuff that goes out in Scotland is seen as lesser, uh, less well funded and somehow of, of less importance and then when there's big events what happens is the troops move in and you have a situation where it just simply always remind yourself that Scotland clearly doesn't have the autonomy it needs around its media. 2 to 95 FM, 810 medium wave, and on digital radio, BBC Radio Scotland. Gordon, Gordon, wait a minute, Gordon. Wait, all I can say is if you've got a complaint about a particular... Hang on, if you've got a complaint about a particular person and the way the BBC is dealing with them, then I really suggest that you get in touch with the BBC and you have that grievance aired because you've got every right to do that and I think you should do that. This morning we are talking about headlines that have appeared in the paper about a particular footballer. We know that there's a lot of chat about footballers in terms of whether they are role models or not. That's a discussion that we're trying to have this morning. I have got no interest in shutting down your complaint. I'm only asking you to refer it through the appropriate channels. Stephen and Ardentini. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, Key. How are you? Uh, not too bad, Stephen. How are that's you? That's another call. It should be locked up. 
Uh, no, not at all, not at all. Everybody's got a place on this show, absolutely. But we are trying to talk about this, and it's kind of difficult to go off on to, to other things that people might not know about. What do you think about footballers, Stephen? Given the emotions provoked by the referendum campaign, it's easy to forget that issues with the national broadcaster's output in Scotland started some time ago. As BBC Scotland has had to absorb successive waves of cuts, news and current affairs has found itself particularly compromised. Increasingly, programmes on Radio Scotland lack dedicated editors and are run with dwindling production staff who work across several different programmes. This has led in turn to more pressure being put on presenters themselves and inevitable declines in quality. In 2012, MSP Joan McAlpine outlined the shape of the problem at an event in the Scottish Parliament. BBC Scotland's money is being cut uh, by 20%, so it's 102 uh, million just now and it's going to be cut by to 86 million and that's in cash terms, uh, not, not real terms, between now and 2018. So it's very, very substantial. And that's at a time when we should be having a national conversation about the constitutional future of the country. Um, if, if BBC Scotland was uh, in a position to already be producing the kind of quality uh, programmes uh, that you, you see than the rest of the network, perhaps uh, get, taking its fair share, which is the argument that they were uh, making to us, uh, would be reasonable. But the, the benchmarking, despite the best efforts of the many talented people that work for BBC Scotland, the, the benchmarking is, uh, is absolutely appalling. And that, actually, that affects the, the kinds of uh, debates that you're, you're able to have. Historian Professor Tom Devine, also speaking at the event, went further. One senior producer who I particularly respect because of his record said he is phoned weekly by colleagues who are still there wanting to know how to get out. This is not redundancy by coercive financial means. This is redundancy because the morale in that station is so low. There is complete virtual contempt for senior management on the part of those who are actually the foot soldiers and the, if you like, the, 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 um, the officers and the NCO class in that, particular, that, in that particular station, which of course they dared not raise in public fora because they are still employed by the organisation. There is no evidence that I have come across listening to people and also appearing on Radio Scotland that there is anything really wrong, despite the great hemorrhage, there's anything really wrong with the skilled personnel who are front of house, who actually do the business. This is what one former senior producer says of the kind of programming that he has to listen to, given the number of times he and his colleagues received accolades in the 1990s. Inept pap, which is embarrassing and demeaning. We all know the programmes he's referring to. We dare not mention them, perhaps, but we all know what they are. How has a once mighty, perhaps not perfect, but an outstanding organisation which existed in the 1990s come to this pass? But BBC Scotland is not alone in facing an extremely bleak outlook in terms of its funding and viability over the coming years. Scotland has some of the oldest and most distinguished newspaper titles in the country. Here in Edinburgh and indeed throughout Scotland, the competition for readers has never been tougher. 
In the broadsheet market, there's authority and gravitas within the Scotsman titles, such as the Scotsman, which has been part of Scottish life since 1817, and has more readers in Scotland than the quality English dailies combined. When you stand outside the Scotsman building that towers over Edinburgh's North Bridge, it's easy to imagine an era when the Scottish press was a definitive institution in Scottish life. It was just around the corner from here, in what is now the city's cowgate, that the first printing press arrived in Scotland in 1508. Its output was, of course, a far cry from what we would think of as media today, but it is widely understood that it was the introduction of printing and a whole new, often international culture that developed around it that marked a point of origin for today's media society. Prior to the use of printing and the development of the first newspapers in the 18th century, the term public opinion didn't exist. The idea that readers could be connected together by an imagined community was extremely powerful, not least in establishing nation-states. By the time the Scotsman launched in 1817, Scotland was already producing what are today some of the world's longest-running newspapers. In 1999, managing editor Alan Taylor explained why he thought the paper was still held in high regard. I think people understand that the Scotsman is the national daily newspaper, but Scotland, uh, no one should underestimate this, is a very tribal country. You know, it's divided into four parts, as it were. You know, you have the Glasgow part, the Aberdeen part, the Dundee part, and the Edinburgh part, and people perceive the Scotsman to be an Edinburgh newspaper. The Scotsman doesn't perceive itself to be that and it has to take on the role of a national newspaper because none of the other papers wants to do that. And that brings huge responsibilities with it. You know, you become a newspaper of record so that you report things straightforwardly, but you invest heavily in things like you know, foreign journalism, international journalism, so that people can see the world from a Scottish perspective. You know, we take that role really, really seriously. With the introduction of new technologies and after a massive financial crash, all of this has changed. When it was bought by Johnson Press, along with its sister titles, in 2005, the buyers handed over a massive £160 million to the controversial Barclay Twins, roughly the same amount that Jeff Bezos would pay for the Washington Post in 2013, a paper with a daily circulation of half a million. In 2014, the staff of all three Scotsman newspapers were merged. The paper was moved from its prestigious offices at Holyrood, and sales for the second half of 2014 had dropped 11% to 26,300. One former editor of the title suggested that these figures meant the paper ought to call time in its print edition altogether. In its heyday, the Scotsman came close to selling 100,000 papers a day, so the decline over recent decades has been remarkably steep, especially considering the status the paper once enjoyed. When you came off the train at Waverley and you looked up and you know, you came, it was awesome and I went into the, the marble hall of the Scotsman with the brass railings on day one and couldn't quite believe I was, I was in there. Derek Bateman, who started out his career as a trainee at the paper, recalls his first day. The Scotsman really was something. Uh, it was an establishment a product in many ways, but it was revered in the way that the banks were revered in those days, in the, in the 60s. Uh, the church was revered. You know, there was a, a sense of respect for institutions which has been completely changed. While the Scotsman has managed to shed readers, staff and pagination in recent years, it has never quite managed to cast off its image as the organ of the Edinburgh establishment. Globally, the printed press and its entire commercial funding model is in decline, a problem which has its own particular intensity in Scotland. So was the Scottish press biased due to a visceral hatred of Scottish nationalism and the whole concept of Scottish independence? Was that the reason that only one weekly newspaper, the Sunday Herald, chose to endorse a position that 45% of the electorate ended up backing. 
On the other hand, isn't the press always likely to back the side that promotes continuity? A century ago, the Labour movement struggled to get a hearing in any national paper. At a time when newspaper readers are getting older, as younger media consumers move online, weren't the Scottish press always likely to back the small-c conservative case for not meddling with the established order? For journalist Ruth Wishart, such attitudes were key to understanding how the Scottish press dealt with the independence issue. There has been this that's gone on for years, not just in Scotland, everywhere else, an intrusion of comment into news stories and the way they're presented. But it's, I don't think it's a crisis in journalism. I just think it's, um, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's people feel that if they take information from a certain establishment source, it must be okay, it must be true, it must be, uh, it must, um, be tablets of stone. And if they take that information from a less well-established source, um, they give that less weight, perhaps. For Ian Bell, this tendency towards a status quo consensus was also of critical importance. As in most things, you start off with a group of people who, whose first loyalties are class loyalties, who, secondly, are not actually accustomed to questioning the status quo. They tend, there's an, almost an instinctive uh, loyalty to the status quo. There's the status quo, which is the status quo, because therefore it must be right, because it is the status quo, and therefore any challenge to it is a challenge that has to be refuted. And then there's straightforward proprietor bias, institutional bias, almost accidental bias, a bunch of nefarious tabloids and a bunch of middle-class semi-broadsheets. They have institutional loyalties, they have class, you know, there is the class loyalties of the people who work in these papers. And there is that, I think underneath it all, there is that attitude that, you know, the status quo is right until you can demonstrate convincingly otherwise. So what do we do about this bleak outlook? Do we resign ourselves to accepting that the public sphere in Scotland is limited, constricted, and only really for certain establishment voices? Or do we try and find a way to liberate the Scottish media so that it is defined by plurality rather than narrowness? We need to remember that providers such as BBC Scotland and The Scotsman were once widely celebrated for their achievements. So the most important question about the future of Scotland's media is not really a partisan one. Rather, it's about how we get to the stage where Scotland again has a media landscape that we can all look at with pride. The first step in getting there must be understanding the scale of the current problem. The biggest and most important problem in the media in Scotland just now is that it's fallen apart. Robin McAlpine is the director of Commonweal. I was a journalist, worked closely with the media in Scotland for 20 years. The Scottish media is in a crisis that, that most people don't understand, both in terms of its quality and structure. We have one of our two main broadsheet newspapers which no longer employs a photographer. Uh, we have another newspaper in Scotland which is supposed to be a serious national newspaper which is put together by the sorts of numbers of journalists that you used to, you, you would call it a fanzine. That's the fundamental problem, it's collapsing. And what that's allowed is a collapsing, dying entity has just become really bad. Um, and generalise across the piece. So the Daily Mail's coming from a different place, the Scotsman's coming from a different place, um, breaks my heart, the Herald is now coming from a different place. They all happen to be broadly um, or virulently anti-independence, but for slightly different reasons. The real problem is it's dying on its feet. The, site, the area between media and the governance of the nation was a, 
a dying, a dying territory. Mm. It was all in its way out already. If the traditional media in Scotland is in its death throes, the obvious response is to ask who and what should replace it. Can we imagine a situation in which the established media is made redundant by fresh new online alternatives? For Ian Bell, the reality of the current media mix and its potential futures are much more complex. The new media, however, in their turn, do depend on the traditional media, either as something to criticise, something to beat up, or we in the traditional media, even if we acknowledge every fault, it is interesting to speculate how the new media will cope if we're gone, because they won't have much to talk about, um, and they won't have the resources. There is a lot of creative friction, let's put it that way. And a lot of friction that isn't so creative, but there's plenty of friction. Even if, even, if, even if it almost amounts to creative destruction, that's not such a bad thing. Either. As Wings Over Scotland editor Stuart Campbell notes, the networked appeal of social media was transformative and a definitive part of the referendum campaign. Indeed, without social media, the entire process would have lacked many of the alternative narratives and voices that made it so significant. It's a huge contribution because that's the only way that you can that you can get word of mouth out to large numbers of people when the media won't fairly report your side of the debate. The, the number of stories that we've broken that by any journalistic standards would be very, very big stories, which have been completely ignored by the media, is, is frightening. It has it's genuinely startled me as a, as a journalist. So if you haven't got social media where something can just sort of go viral in, in minutes, then it would be all very well us finding that stuff out, but only 15 people would ever know Leslie it. Ruddick is a journalist and broadcaster who has worked in both old and new media settings. Too much of journalism in general and, and, and broadcasting has been a question of finding establishment voices and letting them basically have a go at each other. If that's anyone's idea of a social discourse, it's a weak one and it com- constantly discounts those voices which are not part of the establishment. So it's not just about nationalism, it's about poverty, it's about where are the Glasgow accents in the news. Um, All these things are okay in terms of our national broadcaster and not okay for most people watching. The growth of online um, material has been exponential. That may be the most enduring um, aspect of this referendum debate. There will be people who will never read a paper again. The gap or the distance between the conventional media and where most people are at in terms of wanting to hear variety is huge. Making Scotland an interesting place to live in, to talk about, to argue over and to come back to was at the heart of what made last year's referendum a truly remarkable social and political experience. To accept Scotland's media deficit is to accept Scotland's public life as a half-life, defined primarily by archaic silence and cliched novelty. As I said at the start of this programme, there is no simple solution to such a complex problem. But if there is something to aim for, it must be to make a national media that isn't just fit for purpose, but that is as good as it possibly can be, defined by the diversity and freedom of online media and the quality of the best of our media tradition. In the 21st century, we are poised to face up to irrevocable changes, to take multiple steps into the heart that we are unlikely to be able to retrace. We cannot ask for a map as the destination is uncertain. We cannot ask for more time 
But the one thing that we can ask, the one clear demand, must be to take these steps with as much self-awareness, as much collective memory, as much knowledge and as much insight as we can carry with us. If this all sounds a bit too fanciful, just consider the prospect of standing still. If the news where you are is national news, it is only national where you are. The news where we are is national wherever you are. On Saturdays, there is no news where you are after the news where we are. In fact, there is no news where you are on Saturdays. Any news there is, is not where you are. It is where we are. If there is news where you are, but not where we are, it will wait until Sunday. After the news where you are comes the weather. The weather where you are is not the national weather. The weather where you are comes after the news where you are. And after the weather where you are comes the national weather. Do not confuse the national weather with the weather where you are. The weather where you are comes first, but is lesser weather than the national weather. Extreme weather is news. However, weather that is more extreme where you are than where we are is not news. Weather that is extreme where we are is news even if extreme weather where we are is only average weather where you are. On average, weather where you are is more extreme than weather where we are. Tough shit. Good night. (laughs) 